Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Stevens, your host for the PR Masters podcast series. Today's podcast is number 69. And as managing partner of the Stevens Group, which facilitates PR agency acquisitions, I'm eagerly looking forward to chatting with our PR master today, Eric Mower. Now, if the word legend applies to anybody at all in the world of public relations, it truly applies to Eric Mower. There isn't much Eric hasn't done in our industry. He has built an organization that integrates all facets of marketing communications. I've had the privilege of knowing Eric for a number of years now, and uh, I can attest to the fact that this is a man who is truly a master at what he does. So Eric Mower has guided the privately held Mower, which is formerly Eric Mower and Associates, over the past 54 years, growing it from a single location with a staff of four to one of the largest independent, digitally integrated, full-service marketing, advertising, and public relations firms in the United States. The Mower organization functions from 10 U.S. cities, Albany, Atlanta, Boston, Buffalo, Charlotte, Chicago, Cincinnati, New York City, Rochester, and Syracuse. So earlier this year, Mower, the agency, not the man, but they're both integrated, <laughs> Mower was named the Mid-Sized Agency of the Year for B2B by the Association of National Advertisers. And in the last decade, Ad Age Magazine twice mentioned the agency as one of the top 10 best places to work. Eric has served the Business Council of New York State as co-chair of the board for two years, followed by two years as chair of the board. He and his firm joined the Business Council in 1986. Eric is also a trustee of Syracuse University since 1990, and he serves on the advisory council of the Newhouse School. Eric is a chair emeritus of the Advertising Self-Regulatory Council and a past director and secretary treasurer of the American Association of Advertising Agencies, the 4As. And he continues to serve in his 30th year as the chair of the 4As Government Relations Committee. Eric has many, many roles, both on a volunteer basis and a professional basis. And he truly is the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award where he was named by a number of organizations. So I'm very proud to welcome today to our PR Masters podcast series, my dear friend, Eric Mower. Eric, how are you today? I'm swell, Art. It's good to talk with you. It's always good to talk with you, and it's good to talk with you on this particular occasion. Well, thank you, and welcome to PR Masters podcast series. I know a little bit about your background because you and I have known each other for a while, but why don't you tell us how you got into the world of public relations, advertising, and marketing communications to begin with? I think it's an interesting story. It was a circuitous path. When I was in junior high school, my mother looked over my shoulder one day and asked me why I was reading the want ads in one of the New York City newspapers, and particularly why I was reading public relations ads. I don't think I had an adequate answer for her, but for some reason, I found public relations in the want ads very interesting. I went to Syracuse University in 1962, and in the summer of 63, I dropped out of Syracuse University because I was a copy boy at the New York Daily Mirror. I had wanted wow. to be a newspaper. <laughs> uh, I was earning a union wage, 52.75 a week. And copy boys, as you know, were gophers. And this was the New York Daily Mirror, the number two newspaper in New York City. 
Uh, it was an old style, just like in the 1940s movies, what a newsroom looked like. And there were some personalities there, not the least of which was Walter Winchell. It was an interesting time. In, in August of that year, that summer of 63, I went into Bill Hurst's office because I had been called in. And I said, yes, Mr. Hurst. I assumed he was going to send me on another errand because copy boys are gophers. Uh, instead, uh, he said, Eric, sit down. I'd never sat in his office before. He said, I understand you're, you've chosen not to go back to SU. You want to stay here and continue as a copy boy. And I said, yes, Mr. Hurst. He said, well, you're not going to be able to do that. We don't have a job for you. And uh, I said to Mr. Hurst, well, I want to stay. He said, I understand that. But you should go back to Syracuse University. We don't have a job for you. I got back to SU. Four weeks later, uh, that morning, I saw the Syracuse Post Standard out in the front hall of our residence hall, the dormitory. And on the front page, it said, New York City's second largest newspaper closes. So obviously, Mr. Hurst knew that they were closing. I gave up being in the newspaper business, which is part of public relations at that moment in time, and said, okay, I guess I'm not destined to be a newspaper man. I'm going to be a lawyer. So I, I was an English major in pre-law. I was in law school for one day at SU, and I dropped, I'm getting to the public relations part, and I dropped out of SU Law, went over to the Newhouse School and said, will you take me? I don't want to be a lawyer. And uh, the dean of Newhouse School said, sure, we'll take you. We'll use your LSATs instead of GREs. And I went into Newhouse and got a graduate degree in public relations. Uh, I don't know that I wanted to be in public relations at the time. I think I still had some yearning to be a newspaper man. But to make a very long story short, I stayed in Syracuse, wound up in the advertising business, and very soon after that, decided that we also needed to be in the public relations business. Wow. So pick it up from there. What happened? <laughs> Uh, I couldn't give public relations services away. I, I think that because I, I had some appreciation for what earned media would be all about, the term wasn't being used in the early 1970s, but two or three years after I started out in the advertising side of the business, I couldn't give PR services away. I remember meeting with the CEO of a drug chain in the early 1970s, a regional drug chain that was a client of ours, and reviewing the budget with him, and he looked at a line item, and he said, public relations, you want to take, uh, I forget the number, 5%, 7% of the budget, whatever it was, to put into public relations. And I explained to him, and he just took out his pen, and he crossed it off the list. Uh, in, the, in the 70s, uh, public relations was, if not an afterthought, it certainly wasn't a preliminary thought in the minds of so many business organizations be they national in scope, regional in scope, or local in scope. Uh, but the times changed, and I never doubted that one day I would see public relations have equal footing, at least in terms of a CEO's consciousness, and it did come about. But that's over decades. Yeah. So, Eric, you know, you obviously have been successful in building a multifaceted marketing communications organization that encompasses pretty much almost every facet of marketing. How are you able to do that 
because obviously there are some there are many PR agencies that just limit themselves to public relations. But you obviously enhanced all of the marketing facets of current marketing communications. What was your thinking? Why did you go about doing it that way? Well, we were an advertising agency, and in those early years, I had far more success gaining clients for advertising than we did for public relations. But I, we were persistent because over certainly in the 70s and part of the 80s, there were many in, in my organization who said, you know, Eric, you know, you're chasing something that's not going to be fruitful for us. We're not going to see a robust public relations practice. And I felt differently. And so I had a particular desire to see us grow in public relations and, and not have it be a secondary or tertiary service. So persistence was very important. The times changed. That was important. Plus, sometimes luck intervenes. And crisis communications, I think, was really the turning point for us when, by dint of circumstances, over the course of several years, a number of our clients wound up having crises where public relations proved to be very helpful to them. And we took advantage of that. And using that as an example with those clients and also with clients we had who were not using us, we showed them how in a crisis circumstance, public relations expenditures that supported efforts paid good dividends. Was it a difficult decision on the part of uh, some of the marketing people that you uh, were in touch with? I have to assume that, uh, you know, you evolved from dealing with marketing people, brand managers and what have you, you know, right to the C-suite and dealing with CEOs, uh, certainly because of crises, as you mentioned. What kind of a transition was that and how difficult was that to make, you know, to, to go from one part of the corporate office to the other? Well, if I pick a decade arbitrarily, let's say the 80s, the biggest challenge we would have would be within the C-suite, but including uh, legal counsel. Quite often, legal counsel was not inclined to support the recommendations we made, even simple ones like don't say no comment. There's other ways of avoiding the substantial comment that you feel constrained to make that's being asked of you other than just simply saying no comment or not returning phone calls. And so... Gradually, we built relationships with law firms who, when the client said, well, what do you make of this? They had worked with us previously, and they said, well, uh, there's good counsel here. And so we wound up having good partnerships with a number of firms on a regional basis, in great measure starting out in upstate New York, where there are some powerful law firms that command a very large share of corporate business, and over time, they had opportunity to work with us at first being reluctant uh, to go down some of the avenues we recommended, but gradually being more inclined to do it. And the clients, of course, became persuaded. It took time. It was really brick by brick. You're paving a road towards something better. Today, it's not a hard sell. I think CMOs, CEOs are far more sophisticated today in how public relations can be a benefit to their business than they were 20 or 30 years ago. So, Eric, your firm has grown quite a bit uh, since you started it, obviously, which is one of the reasons you, of course, are a PR master. 
Why do you think it has grown? What is it best at? What did you focus on primarily, you know, to uh, enhance growth? And what do you believe it's known for? Well, I'll take them in in that order. Uh, Why do I think it's grown? I think uh, there are quite a few reasons, but I focus on independence as a primary driving factor. Independence embraces a number of things. Independence uh, points toward ownership, and so the ownership was closely held. I own the company. We are fiercely independent. Uh, We probably had over the decades six serious conversations with outside buyers, and each time we backed away because uh, I and we felt that the degree of control we would have to continue to operate the business the way we do would no longer continue. And so independence was a, a primary factor. I think secondly, our culture. We have a very low turnover of employees historically over decades. Uh, we focus on culture. It's not just work-life balance. It's way well beyond that. It, it pertains to respect uh, for the individual, the way in which we treat people. That was a factor. The fact that we were balanced between B2C and B2B, it's very attractive to many prospective clients. On the B2C side, they like the fact that you do B2B. They may wish to use it, but they also feel you've learned important lessons about the category by virtue of doing that category and others by virtue of doing B2B. And And the flip side is the same. On the B2B side, the portfolio you develop in B2C is often very attractive creatively and strategically to those on the B2B side who feel that if you can be competitive for your clients in tough B2C categories, then you bring something to them in B2B. So uh, those are three, three of the factors. I think the fourth factor is just absolute persistence. Never say die. We just don't quit. We don't have the opportunities that, that the holding companies agencies typically have because we don't have we don't have a feeder mechanism, so to speak, where another unit of the holding company is referring business to us. So as a, if we were a PR firm in a holding company, there'd be advertising units or digital units or other units of the company who may very well be referring business to us. So for us, it's a steeper climb uphill. Eric, what effect has the pandemic had on your overall business? Well, fortunately for us, we were already working remotely. We had had for several years prior to the pandemic arriving what we called work from home Fridays. So functionally, operationally, psychologically, in terms of productivity, all of our systems, uh, our bandwidth, all of those things, we had had work from home Friday. So we slid into remote work very easily. So that was that was one aspect of the pandemic. The second aspect of the pandemic was that we were comfortable with remote work. The culture of our company did not have anxiety about whether or not we would lose productivity. I never doubted that our productivity would remain high by virtue of of our employees. And that's because for many, many years, our management point of view is that employees come to work, but engaged employees come to do it better. 
And our culture has been based on engaged employees, something we call the yuck factor, IUC. Involvement leads to understanding and understanding leads to commitment. We've always operated, for decades, we've operated the business by trying to create maximum involvement for our employees via a consultative and collaborative workplace. And that yields greater understanding of why the agency makes the decisions it does, takes the directions that it does. And that understanding ultimately results in a higher degree of commitment from the employees. We chose not to fire anyone uh, when the pandemic hit. Mm. Uh, We did an across-the-board pay cut, with my cut being the most severe. And we shared not the, the numbers, but the, well, the numbers, the percents, not the dollars. We discussed percents. I told them what percent my pay would be cut, what percent the senior leadership's pay would be cut, what percent uh, others would be cut. And uh, we had that, uh, that pay uh, reduction in place for some time, and we promised them that if we could, later on, we would reimburse them the reduction that they took. And we did do that. We did reimburse them. Oh, wow. wow. So that kind of transparency was a very important factor of getting us through. They saw us protect our employees by virtue of rather than firing them, reducing everyone's pay. And then, of course, we ultimately raised, raised the pay back up to previous levels and reimbursed them. So, so beyond that, we had started shedding office space prior to the pandemic. Why were we shedding office space in our various cities? Well, A, we had, in some of our cities, the space was really, was really not just A, A space, it was A plus plus. And prior to the pandemic, we had been talking about the fact that increasingly clients were not coming to visit our offices and from talking with colleagues in other agencies, they were experiencing the same thing. Fewer clients, were coming to their office on fewer occasions. And when the client wanted to meet in person, they preferred to do it out at their offices. So, A, we were saying clients aren't coming to the offices so frequently. Why do we have these very spacious offices, et cetera? Secondly, when the clients did come to the offices, increasingly they're saying, nice offices, we're paying for this, aren't we? (laughs) so, So we started cutting back on office space in terms of square footage and maybe uh, moving from one space, maybe moving from A++ space just to A space. And so when the pandemic hit, we had already taken some degree of rent on our overhead, which was very beneficial because we did get it. Many of our clients postponed projects, cut their budgets, uh, eliminated efforts. And as a result, certainly in the first 12 months of the pandemic, we were faced with clients that were sticking with us, but were spending less money. And so the combination of reduced rents and, and reduced spending by clients kind of zeroed out. That was good. Also, we have yet to go back to in-office work. We are staying with remote. It's been very successful for us. The genie's not going back in the bottle. We have consulted with many other agencies across the nation that we're friendly with, that we have relationships with, and we were convinced on our part that requiring uh, staff to come back was not going to be the right step for us. It may be for other agencies, 
our people are very happy. We're doing right now one or two days a month mandatory in the office, but not to just come in and sit in a space and do what you can do at home. This is the team meetings, client meetings, uh, maybe a meeting on a particular initiative where we want people face-to-face. So we're continuing to work remotely. We're not saying that that'll be permanent, but for the time being, we're going into 2023, essentially a remote operation. And none of our clients have complained. There have been zero complaints. Well, you sounds like you certainly weathered the storm without question. Hopefully there won't be uh, another storm quite like that any, uh, going forward. But speaking of going forward, you know, obviously, you know, your agency uh, obviously embraces all forms of, you know, of technology currently. What do you see in the next five to 10 years? You know, you obviously uh, you provide full services and all of the marketing components that you offer. What do you see as uh, new services and new avenues coming up, either because of technology or the changing nature of, of society? What do you see happening in the next five to 10 years in the world of public relations agencies? I think in general for them and specifically for us, uh, we have got to grow our data analytics capability. What we have now needs to grow because increasingly, despite what's happening to cookies and all of that, data analytics uh, are critical. And many agencies are struggling with it because the, the kind of data analytics you need to do, there's a huge demand and not an adequate supply. And because we are an independent agency, quite often we find ourselves recruiting uh, a prospect to join us, and the supply and demand reality is such that we are often outbid by a client company uh, as they seek data analytics, or maybe by agencies that are larger than us. But data analytics are critical for us. I think also we're going to continue to specialize. Specialization has been important to us. And we're kind of a duality. On the one hand, we're a general hospital. And I feel very strongly that we've been rewarded over the decades by new clients coming to us and clients staying with us because we are a general hospital. We have all, we have, you know, we do advertising, we do public relations, we do promotion, we do digital, social media, et cetera. And we do them well. So the general hospital for many of our clients is important, but there are many clients, on the other hand, who use us out for only one thing, advertising or public relations. But specialties are important, and we have grown a few specialties in particular, energy being top of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy, fortunately for us, as the energy industry in all of its various forms continues to grow in importance and scope, We've been growing with it, and we had a bit of a head start in energy just by virtue of the fact that we had had some utility experience uh, that got us started. But we're heavily into wind. We're heavily into solar. Uh, we're certainly heavily into regulated utilities. But in both advertising and public relations, they're mutually beneficial because quite often the very companies for whom we are advertising They also need a lot of help in public relations because if they are going to develop a wind farm or a solar farm, they go through a a very difficult process that includes siting and zoning challenges and a, a wide array of issues that ultimately leading up to the ability to actually 
install a wind farm, but to actually have the wind farm in a particular location or a solar installation. So energy has been very productive for us. And there are some other categories also that, that have been productive for us. Financial services, healthcare, travel and tourism. Uh, our New York City office is heavily into travel and tourism, has been for many, many and certainly the pandemic hit us hard in that, in that sense, but we knew it would come back, and it did. So specialization is important, and we wish to grow in those categories and continue to invest in them. And part of the investment is bringing on people who have experience in those categories as well as growing our own. Eric, obviously you have offices in a number of different cities, and the organization has grown uh, during the past number of years. How would you characterize your management style? What is it you personally focus on, and how is the organization set up, you know, so that, uh, you know, you can do what you feel you do best and obviously delegate to uh, other people? Can you tell us about your management style? Sure. A lot of our growth is based on delegation. I think going back to the 1970s, I've always believed that you that if you're going to grow an organization, You've got to be able to delegate, and, and you should delegate to the lowest possible level in the company where there's adequate competency to do the job and then give them the authority to do it. So we've, we've grown over the years by delegation. Delegation, as a result, has led to advancement of our people. They've been able to step up on their career ladder to the next level of the company. Now, it, it, an imperative, of course, is that we're adding business because you're only delegating because you're adding business. If you're delegating without adding business, a lot of people higher up in the organization, they end up with very little to do. But we've always delegated. And along with delegation, there's been a very careful maintenance of who we invite into the company. Recruitment is a critical factor. Uh, our HR team does an excellent job in identifying candidates and then moving them through the recruitment process in the company. And we're pretty pointed in terms of what we're looking for. The shorthand that we use is stay power, S-T-A-Y, power. Uh, the S stands for smarts, but it's not Phi Beta Kappa smarts, although that's fine. It's not high IQ, although that's fine. What we're looking for is someone with street smarts, uh, a certain kind of social intelligence. They may have other smarts too, like a high IQ, uh, but not necessarily. Many, I think many people in the world who have been very successful had a degree of, of smarts that may, not, may have been average IQ, but extraordinary uh, street smarts and social intelligence. So we're looking for people who are smart. We're looking for the T and tough. It's not abrasive. It's not belligerent. Uh, these are people who get knocked down and get back up. They, they just don't take rejection either to heart uh, or as a reason to not move forward. So tenacity is very important for us. It's part of that persistence and determination. The A is for ability, competence. Uh, quite often a prospective client will say, Eric, why are we paying, why are you charging, we want to charge us for a dollar an hour? The agency across the street or, or down the road or in the next city will charge us 92 cents an hour. And I say, fine, competence isn't a commodity. Our rates are based on the value of the work that our people will do for you. So A is for ability, and then the Y is yearning. It's, it's that fire in the belly. 
you know, over the years, some magazine or newspaper has done a story on, on us, and they say, well, how do you motivate your people? And my answer is, I don't motivate our people. They come to us motivated. The trick for us is to not demotivate them. <laughs> so recruitment and then retention is a key part of it, being able to retain people. And the number one thing in terms of retention beyond money, in, in my view, is treating people with respect and letting them feel fulfilled on the job. And it isn't about work-life balance. It's really about someone coming to work and feeling good about being in the workplace for all the reasons that one could feel good about being in that particular workplace. Wow. Wow, that is very, very, very instructive, I must say. So given all that, I, I guess the final part of my question was, how do you uh, describe your own management style? I, I know you do a lot of delegating, and obviously uh, you, you, know, you make sure that whoever joins the organization has that fire in the belly, as you've described. But what is your own management style? What do you focus on? Uh, I focus on, on collaboration and, and consultation. And sometime in the 1970s, I announced to all the people in the company that I, I gave up the right to hire or fire unilaterally as the owner of the company. I said, I don't see any good reason why I should ever want to fire or hire unilaterally without consulting with appropriate people in the company, which means that you can't hire or fire unilaterally either. Hmm. Uh, and I used that as one part of establishing a consultative workplace where I wanted people to, to believe that two heads can be better than one. doesn't mean you don't have to make the decision. If it's your responsibility, you as an individual need to make the decision ultimately within the framework of decision-making in our company, and there is a framework for that. But you as an individual ought to want to know what at least one colleague thinks before you do it. Am I missing anything here? You might say to them. So consultation has been critical, and I consult. Uh, there are very, very few decisions I'll make in a decade where I didn't consult. And if I didn't consult, it's because I would. the very nature of consulting would have been dishonest. I knew what I wanted to do. So when I knew that I wanted us to stay independent, and as a result, if I were to die, unexpectedly. And so we went down ESA. I knew we were going to do an ESA, an employee stock ownership plan, because I believed it was the safest, best place for my company to be in the event I wasn't with the company anymore, whether let the employees run the company. So consultation is critical. Uh, collaboration results from consultation. People will not be collaborative if you don't care about their opinion, because that's what you're saying. If you don't ask their opinion, then why would they be interested in collaborating with you? You've dismissed them already. And so my style has been collaborative and consultative. And people know what our values are. Values in a company are very important. I think. People know that, that the company's integrity will never be exchanged for financial gain. Decades ago, we said that we would not do tobacco. And we've turned down some tobacco opportunities over the years. We just wouldn't do it. We've, we've declined 
some corporate work because of the nature of the corporation and the values that they had. So purpose is more important than profit. And, and that's what employees want. They want to come, when I said they want to come and feel good about their workplace, purpose is part of that. It isn't the vision thing. I'm not talking about vision. I'm talking about where the rubber meets the road. Do they see the company walking the talk? So if, if it's about purpose, ultimately, over profit, we want profit, of course. We want to be profitable, and we want to have a lot of profits. But if profit becomes more important than purpose, we won't recruit the people we want to recruit. We won't, we won't retain uh, the people that we want to retain because they can't be bought. They don't want to be bought. They sell their services, so to speak, in a marketplace of agencies to a marketplace of clients. So I think people understand what I and other senior leaders and what the company stands for and why we come to work every day and do the things that we do. Well, Eric, I've got one final question. This has been extraordinarily illuminating, and I've learned a great deal more about you than I ever ever knew, and, and I thank you for that, and I know our listeners do as well. I have one final question for you, and that is, where do you see Eric Mower in the years ahead? Well, first of all, hopefully alive and well. <laughs> so there's one answer. We're, we're assuming that. <laughs> I'm going to stay connected to my business. The agency is going to continue to grow, and I have to continue delegating. If I don't continue delegating, one day there's going to be another CEO, and I'll be executive chairman. But that has to happen because the agency needs to be put into always the company needs to be protected so that in the event of uh, my passing, there's no chaos. There's no disruption. Hopefully there'll be a bit of regret and sadness, but our clients will know they're still in good hands. Our vendors will still know that they're going to be treated well. Our employees will know that there's no crisis in the company. So, I will move out of the CEO job. It's only a matter of time, and probably sooner rather than later. What sooner? Well, uh, not this month, not next month, but could it be next year, maybe, the year after? Probably by the year after. And I will serve as executive chairman, but I'll be a working executive chairman. And as long as my health remains good, I can see uh, staying on as executive chairman and working in that role where a board sets policy, and a CEO reports to a board uh, as as the primary scope of what I would be focused on. Well, Eric Mower, founder and CEO of Mower, I thank you on behalf of our listeners. I thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your insights, and your perspective on the world of marketing and public relations with us today. Thank you for being with us, Eric. And I thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us today for another PR Masters podcast, Most Illuminating. Eric Mower was sensational, imparting the wisdom that so many of you can use in your careers and, and your lives. So I am Art Stevens, your host. It's been my pleasure to bring to you the PR Masters podcast series today featuring Eric Mower. And I urge you to join us again next time when we will have another PR Master with us. So until then... Have a great day, and I'm signing off. Thank you all.